The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. Governments themselves should be proactively transparent. It shouldn't, it shouldn't necessarily be up to the companies to disclose this, that if government is going to involve themselves in content moderation decisions, they should do that in the open. The government themselves should affirmatively report these things, not just passively allow the platforms to do so. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 23rd, 2021. We're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. In 2018, a group of academics and free expression advocates convened in Santa Clara, California for a workshop. They emerged with the Santa Clara Principles on Transparency and Accountability in Content Moderation, a high-level list of procedural steps that social media companies should take when making decisions about the content on their services. The principles quickly became influential, earning the endorsement of a number of major technology companies like Facebook. Three years later, a second edition of the principles has just been released, the product of a broader consultation process and including more detail. So what's changed? Evelyn Duick and I spoke with David Green, senior staff attorney and civil liberties director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. At EFF, He's been centrally involved in the creation of version 2.0 of the principles. We talked about what motivated the effort to put together the new edition, and what role he sees the principles playing in the conversation around content moderation. And we discussed amicus briefs that EFF has filed in the ongoing litigation over social media regulation laws passed by Texas and Florida. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 23rd. Working toward transparency and accountability in content moderation. There's lots that we want to talk about with you today because there's lots going on in the realm of digital rights. But the immediate prompt for having you on was the recent release of version two of the Santa Clara Principles on Transparency and Accountability in Content Moderation. So let's start there. Uh, What are the Santa Clara Principles? And the fact that there's a version two naturally raises the question of what version one was. So maybe you can talk a little bit about where the Santa Clara Principles came from and what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, happy to do that. So very broadly, the Santa Clara Principles was an attempt by civil society and and some academics to put a human rights framing on content moderation. And and so that's what it was. It, It really wasn't a planned effort. It sort of happened spontaneously. There was a series of conferences called Content Moderation at Scale. And uh, adjacent to the first one, a group of uh, people got decided to get together before the conference just to talk about some of these issues. And what emerged from this meeting was what became called the Santa Clara Principles. And, and again, just really attempt to like, how do we talk about content moderation? What does it mean to do content moderation in a way that uh, respects or at least pays attention to human rights? So uh, what came out of that very simply was a set of minimum standards that platforms that are intermediaries that moderate user content, minimum standards that they should uh, they should follow in order to 
respect or at least pay attention to the human rights implications of controlling their users' speech. And very simply, there were three principles. It was numbers, notice, and appeal. Uh, numbers was, uh, was essentially uh, the transparency provision reporting data about their content moderation practices. Notice was the idea that if a user's speech is moderated in some way, they should be given notice of it. And appeals was the idea that then they should then have the opportunity to appeal that decision and have it reconsidered. So that's very simply what the original Santa Clara principles were. Uh, after about two years, we started thinking about wh whether these were relevant and whether, whether they were useful. And there was another concern was that the original group of, of people who got together, again, this wasn't sort of a planned effort to, to birth a series of principles. The original group who got to pe people who got together were very focused on the U.S. and, and Europe. There, there was one participant from New Zealand, but it was otherwise very focused on on the global north and really very heavily concentrated in the US. And as we all know, content moderation is not uniquely a US issue. In fact, it has a more compelling human rights dimension, I think, uh, outside the US. And so we wanted a sense of how relevant these principles were globally and what they would look like if there were contributions from global interests and not just from US and Western Europe. Uh, based advocates. And so in order to do that, we embarked on a two-year open consultation. Uh, the idea was to try and get as much feedback as possible from around the world about the Santa Clara principles. We put out a 13-question survey and made that available. And the real idea was actually to try and have a series of in-person sessions around the world where people with various stakeholders would you know, would talk about, would try and go through these questions and talk about what they needed from content moderation from human rights perspective. Anyway, so the Santa Clara, the, the second version was birthed out of that, out of that process. That, that process became more difficult because COVID happened in the middle and the opportunity to do in-person sessions you know, went away, but we were able to still organize uh, virtual sessions all around the world. And, and we're pretty pleased, you know, especially given the pandemic with the amount of, of feedback we received. So there are a lot of differences between version two of the principles and and version one. I mean, the, the chief difference is just that it's a lot longer and, and it's a lot more detailed on a lot of fronts. Can you walk us through some of the changes that you feel are most important in the second version? Yeah, happy to do that. I think there's, to me, I, I point to five main differences. The first is that we added a set of foundational principles. You could, you could consider the original, ver the original principles of number, notice, and appeal to be operational principles. These are things that you put into operation in order to operate within a, a human rights framework. We added a set of foundational principles, which are really more sort of overarching concepts and values. And the idea being that these values should be or should be considered, you know, in building and operating social media and other types of other types of online uh, speech platforms. So that's one of the big differences. And I can go through later what those foundational principles specifically are. The second big change was that, as I said before, the original principles were a set of minimum standards. And we were always a bit concerned about this. We had buy-in for the original principles from some of the very large, some of the very large social media companies. And but it was we always were concerned that 
by calling the minimum standards that maybe they were minimum standards for a very small set of companies, but that there were some who still couldn't comply with them. And maybe if they were out of reach, they wouldn't even try. And also the fact that for some of the very, very large companies, that maybe they weren't enough. And so the new Santa Clara principles shifts away from minimum standards. They're just called standards now. And I think you can look at them most helpfully as sort of the average set of behaviors. Um, I, I think some uh, sociologists, somebody called this sort of the behavioral mean. The idea that this is sort of a, a middle ground for, for compliance, that that some uh, companies should be doing much more, some will reasonably do less, some might comply with some of them in full, some might, um, some might not be able to comply with others. But the idea is that they, they describe uh, an average set of behaviors rather than set, rather than set a minimum. So that's another big difference. I think the third one is that once you get into the operational principles, they're much more detailed. (laughs) There's a lot or a lot more requirements. And and that's really related to the idea that once we were able to free them from being minimum standards, we're actually able to put make them a lot more demanding. And, And this really reflected a lot of the very specific feedback and input that we got from around the world who really wanted a lot more information to be disclosed and also to have the notice and appeal provisions to be more to be more detailed. The fourth biggest change is that we also added uh, a very short set of principles for government. And we thought this was important. I I think we hear especially now a lot about you know governments demanding transparency especially from the large social media platforms. You know as someone who's been doing work fighting for government transparency for like 30 years. I, I find this to be quite <laughs> hypocritical I, or it just annoying to me. Uh, government is often the largest barrier to transparency, both from private companies um, and elsewhere. Government has, is, you know, government frequently gags companies from, from talking about government requests for action. And, and so I thought before, you know, we thought collectively that, you know, before government should be demanding transparency from any of the companies, government needs to actually remove its barriers from tra- that it places on companies uh, for being transparent as well and to promote government transparency as well. So there are a set of principles for government. And then the fifth major change is that in addition to the principles, uh, we also published a set of implementation guides. And these are called toolkits. Uh, and basically, you know, how do you use these principles? And there's there's one for advocates in terms of how do you use these as an advocacy tool, uh, both with the public and with the companies themselves, and then one for the companies and give a little bit more detail about how to implement the Santa Clara principles. And then there's also a note to regulators as well. I guess you could sort of consider that a toolkit to regulators, but it really just has a very strong statement that says that these are not intended to be a template uh, for regulation. So I think those are the five biggest changes uh, from the first version to the second version. So that's an incredibly helpful overview, and we definitely want to dig into some of the specifics of some of those changes. But to sort of set it up a little bit further, I mean, from where I'm sitting, the Santa Clara principles have been uh, remarkably influential, which is uh, somewhat not surprising. Both version one and version two have been signed on to 
by a, a complete murderer's row of the most important digital rights organizations and people involved in their creation are really sort of the leaders in the field. So they get cited all the time as sort of the goal and gold standard of what content moderation systems should aim for. And I think that's kind of what you were getting at with the comment that you made about they're no longer minimum standards, but kind of an average standard. What kind of influence do you think that the Santa Clara principles have had? How have you seen them be taken up by both uh, industry and advocates and and sort of the broader discourse around content moderation? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. And I think one of the one of the questions we asked during the survey was, do you even are these even relevant to you at all? And we were we were pleased that almost all the responses we got, and maybe all of them, uh, were that yes, they were. So even uh, even in our consultations in Africa and India, even in some of the even the inputs we got from uh, from East Asia, you know, everyone said that the Santa Clara principles were were very helpful to them as advocates, and they thought and relevant to them to to really again just the, for even if just for the basic idea of thinking about what a human rights compliant or a human rights respecting operation would look like. Um, in terms of the companies, you know, there was a lot of, there was, you know, I think Reddit uh, very notably said they were going to comply with them in full and, and issued a report stating how they, how they had complied with them. At EFF uh, in 2019, we devoted our uh, Who Has Your Back report to tracking compliance with the Santa Clara principles and, and Reddit, you know, got five stars for doing that. Many other companies uh, expressed support for them, even if they didn't comply with them in full. So I, I think that was I think that was important. And I also think it's one of the reasons why we realized that we need, because they were gaining such traction, we needed to be careful to make sure that they actually really reflected, they reflected global concerns and that they were still relevant and that there were things that need to change. So I, I think we're hopeful with the new principles one of the reasons to move away from minimum standards is that is that hopefully these will now be more relevant to a larger range of intermediary services and not i think there was a risk that the original principles as minimum standards were only useful to companies after they became fairly large and well resourced and so i think we're hopeful that these will be more relevant to a broader range of actors, and especially having foundational principles will give advocates a way of talking about values in this space that aren't tied necessarily to, you know, to specific operational ask that maybe a, you know, a certain service could not comply with. I want to go back to the focus you mentioned on the transparency that you think needs to be provided into government involvement in content moderation decisions, which is important because, as you say, often governments are going to be in favor of opacity with respect to their own activities, and platforms will often be responsive to that and go along with it. So can you give us a little more context about what kinds of involvement governments have in content moderation and the transparency that the principles are urging in those cases, and maybe also what kind of uptake you've seen from platforms and governments of your recommendations? Yeah. So I would say from the comments and inputs we received from outside the U.S. and Western Europe, there were two very loudly spoken concerns, both of which are reflected in the foundational principles. One was for that there, there, for the need to have cultural competence 
in the content moderation system. And then the other one was a great concern for government involvement in the content moderation system. So this, and that was when governments are requesting, uh, making requests to take down or otherwise moderate content or cancel accounts themselves and, and the relation and government's direct involvement in a whole variety of user content decisions. And that was identified as being a very significant problem that we heard about from, from you know, people who commented around the world and, and particularly again outside of, of the US um, and Europe. And I even and I think what, what we have seen as well, even in the US and Europe again, is just a complete uncertainty about this about the actions of the involvement of the state. Um, we hear many times, I, I think an example, uh, sort of an easy example is with terrorist content. You'll hear many times uh, that uh, and Facebook is notorious for doing this, for saying that, well, you know, we are required by law you know, to suspend the account or remove content from any entity that is a designated foreign terrorist organization that appears on the U.S. FTO list. As a lawyer, I don't know of the legal, <laughs> of, of that legal requirement. Um, and, and many times I've asked the company, so that's very interesting. What can you point me to where that is a, where that is actually in the law that you are not required to do, that you are um, required to take these things down? And, and I get, I don't think such a requirement exists, but it, it, it does raise the issue of to what extent is government behind the scenes, what what are they telling the companies? What are they demanding? What are their expectations about, in this example, terrorist content? So I do think it's a problem. I do think it's an issue. It's an issue everywhere. And I think what we are very, we, again, as a, as a First Amendment lawyer, I'm very familiar with all governments of all stripes, even those who hold themselves out to be sort of the you know, high marks of, of democracies, demanding secrecy of companies when government orders them to do something. And so gag orders are, are a big problem in U.S. law and, 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 and a big problem in legal systems throughout the world. Um, so very simply, what the Santa Clara principle says, is there, there are two principles for government. So remove these barriers to transparency and refrain from introducing such barriers that prevent companies from fully complying with the disclosure principles. So companies cannot give a user notice that their account has been suspended if the government has forbidden them from communicating that to the user. And so very simply, just that idea is that do not, do not gag companies, do not prevent them from making these disclosures both to the public and to users. And then the second thing is that governments themselves should be proactively transparent. It shouldn't it should necessarily be up to the companies to disclose this, that if government is going to involve themselves in content moderation decisions, they should do that in the open. And the government themselves should affirmatively report these things, not just passively allow the platforms to do so. So version two of the principles includes an addition that says uh, in bold type that the principles, quote, are not designed to provide a template for regulation. 
And you also include, as you mentioned, a note to regulators, the tone of which reminds me a little bit of, you know, those notes included with hair dryers telling you not to use them in the bathtub for your own safety that says uh, the principles were not created for that purpose and should not be used as such. States should not transform the Santa Clara principles directly into legal mandates. So why why don't you want the principles used that way? Have you seen them used as a template or have you seen indications that regulators are thinking of using them as a template such that you wanted to warn them off? Yeah, I don't, you know, again, this was something that really uh, arose out of the comments and feedback we received. So I, I just, I just want to be clear that it, it, that if I say I, if I use a first person here, I, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm trying to communicate uh, the view, both of the, those who commented, responded to our global open consultation, as well as the very, the larger group that put all that information together and, and put them into the into the principles. There was a great concern, and maybe even especially from out, again outside of Europe and and the U.S. that any set of principles <laughs> would would be manipulated for ill purposes by governments. Um, I do think if you look at the EU and the U.S., um, you can identify some efforts where you know to take. Some of the things like that are in the Santa Clara principles and and mandate them. I don't know if any of those regulators took the Santa Clara principles as the template, but there was definitely a concern. And even even some of the commenters expressed some reservation about being involved in a process that would lead you know to regulation, and, and that's why we really saw this very strong statement really arising from all of that. It wasn't it wasn't something that we sort of the the core group of organizations that worked on putting everything together sort of came up with ourselves. It really was a, a very strong message we received from the comments. So it's hard to tell. I, I don't I don't know of a regulator that has come out and said, um, we modeled this on the Santa Clara principles. I believe in one of the, I'm trying to think if the state of Florida in defending uh, its net choice lawsuit mentioned them. I, I don't actually recall if they mentioned them by name, but it's it's hard to tell. I, I, I have no, um, you know, I have no indication that, that a regular actually took them. So this was really a concern, but it was a concern that especially as the principles got more granular and got more detailed, that they were going to be ill-suited for regulation. And I think, again, that's both a concern from people in less democratic societies who see any self-regulatory model and have a history of seeing self-regulatory models manipulated for ill governmental purposes, as well as also a concern for people in more democratic societies. And I'm you're using air quotes as I say democratic and non-democratic. I don't know that those are easily definable distinctions, but that they just, they weren't written in a way to be regulations. Like as they were being written, we weren't, we weren't writing them uh, the way one might write governmental mandates that had legal penalties attached to non-compliance. Yeah. Although I think potentially they've been a victim of their own success in a sense, because as you say, the, the, the template that they outline of individual numbers, notice, appeal, reasons uh, does appear in a, in a number of pieces of regulation, uh, both domestically and uh, around the world. Yeah, the Digital Services Act, you mentioned the Florida law, which we're going to come back to. There's another Texas law uh, that's similar or the PACT Act that's on the on the hill. And, you, you know, 
I think that it's, it's of course, unclear to say where that motivation comes from. And it's highly unlikely that all these regulators, no offense, sitting down and reading the Santa Clara principles, um, you know, or have them by their bedside table. But I do think there's sort of this ambient influence on the discourse of that being the sort of dominant model. And I think that makes sense in a lot of ways or shouldn't be surprising in a lot of ways because the the, the model is kind of intuitive, right? Like it, it resembles the way that we think about speech rights in an offline context. If you're thinking about the First Amendment or international human rights law, the kinds of due process protections that you want in those contexts are very similar. They're about giving an individual clear notice of the rules that they have to uh, abide by that, that aren't unduly vague, giving them an opportunity to present their case and, and be heard uh, by an impartial tribunal, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's also, you know, a pretty easy law for a regulator to write, right? To just say, do this in every case. But, you know, uh, my role on this podcast often, uh, and maybe in life in general, is to play a bit of a Grinch. And as you know, uh, I have some skepticism about the, the utility of that model, both, I think, in terms of regulation, you know, which is obviously reflected very strongly in version two, but also in, in terms of self-regulation. And I think uh, one of the main reasons is is feasibility, um, which you kind of referenced in terms of the smaller platforms and the diversity of platform approaches. But I'm also not sure that it's feasible for even the large platforms, given the sort of billions of content decisions that they're making every day. Um, and so I'm wondering how you, you, you think about that when you're writing the Santa Clara principles, you know, like, for example, spam decisions, those are it's sort of in the billions and billions. And I, I don't really think that there's uh, this sort of idea that in every one of those decisions, platforms should be providing notice, appeal, reasons, opportunity to present their case. Uh, I could be wrong on that. But it seems to me that there is this kind of implicit trade off happening between sort of uh, the utility of extra procedural protections and their feasibility and sort of their desirability. And I'm not sure that, that comes through on the face of the principles, but I'm, I'm curious for your reaction to that. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I, I think for me personally, one of the things that I thought was our biggest challenges was, you know, and we say this every time we talk about this, we talk about this area, whether we're talking about you know, due process and transparency or anything else, you know, is how does this scale? Like, you know, what, the, the, how do we confront the problem of that? There's just so many of these decisions being made every, every second. And, and even for a small platform has to make, you know, an inordinate number of decisions. And how, how does this, how does that work? And, you know, to me, really, the moving away from minimum standards was at least a sense to it was at least an effort to acknowledge, like, how do we do something that's going to be more useful that allows for very sensible decisions to not comply with something, either because of the nature of the service or, or the resources available or just their experience with efficacy? You know, how do you how do you give the flexibility to do that? And, and to me, this actually ties in with the reason why they're why they're not appropriate as as regulations. And we try and say some of that in the note to regulators, explain why that's one of the reasons they wouldn't work. It would be very hard to to sort of tier these in a way that would that would make sense. And again, it's not just about size. It's sometimes just the nature of someone's service. We also published a report um, that summarizes a lot of the inputs we received. And uh, in there, there's a comment you know, from GitHub, which was one of the companies that submitted that submitted feedback that that specifically asked for uh, something to be in the principles that exempted spam and malware and 
something else, you know, from the principles. And that, and understandably, that's that's a very attractive exemption. And and we we very much considered that. We also had some comments from some others uh, who had said that we see companies when they want to evade their human rights obligations, just call something spam, right? So there, there is this you know, conflicting tension between, yes, when something is legitimately spam, it, you should not have to give the spammer notice and an opportunity to appeal. But at the same time is by when you create an exemption for spam, do you then provide a pathway for abuse. And uh, the way this is reflected in the principles um, themselves is to just say that if you're not going, if, if you're not going to comply with something, just have that be clear in your rules and an explanation of why not. So if you have a rule, if you have a rule that says, if your policy is say we will comply with you know, the notice provisions, except in the case of spam, then that should be in your rules and also an explanation about what is spam and how you how you determine what it is. So it's, that's that's how we try to do that. I, I, I really I really hear you. I, mean, I do think there's a tension. I hear you that it, the more flexibility you get, perhaps the less usefulness you get from them, right? And and that one of the attractive things about the initial set of principles was that they were so easy and catchy. Numbers, notice, and appeal. You know, it was it was it was very easy. And these are much more difficult to you know, sort of slap a logo on uh, onto. And and so, do you lose utility by by trying to build in this flexibility? I really hope not. I mean, I, I, I what we tried to do is really find some type of middle ground where they where the values were identified, where the operational principles, where there was flexibility in operational principles, so that they would be that they would be useful, but also be practical on some level as well. I love the the catchiness idea of um, numbers, notice, and appeal. Like it kind of sounds like the chorus of a song, like "Sign, sealed, delivered, I'm yours." So I uh, I totally understand the the attractiveness of sort of those baseline principles. But as with everything in this, you know, content moderation is all about trade offs, and I guess talking about content moderation is the same. This idea of like just really trying to distill this thing, and maybe you know. When version one came out, the baseline was so low, there was no transparency, there was no understanding of these systems at all and how they worked. And so it really was a huge step forward to even be introducing those terms into the discourse and understanding that that's how platforms perform this. But now that we're sort of a a number of years down the track, being more nuanced about it, even if it is at the sacrifice of of having not not as sort of as catchy a label, maybe makes sense. Yeah, I think it's... One of the responses I've heard since um, since the second version was released was, "Oh, you know, there was something very practical about the first version, and I, I fear we've lost that." And I think what we heard from reading all the commentary, and even actually, I think a suspicion that many of us who pay attention to the content moderation field had, is that they were practical for a very small set of users and a very small set of services. And so why the original, although the original set of principles might have been very practical for US-based Twitter and Facebook users, they may not have been as practical for users in other part of the world and people uh, using other services. 
So, uh, so I guess that is a trade-off. I really hope we've gotten to a place where our sort of the net, the net practicality, you know, we've increased the net practicality. So speaking of, of trade-offs, we also wanted to ask you about the potential trade-offs in reporting and transparency. You know, if you kind of, you know, put your, your red team, how could this possibly go wrong hat on, which I think is, as Evelyn was kind of saying, always useful uh, in thinking about content moderation. I can imagine a world in which putting out these numbers could create an incentive for platforms to report ever more takedowns so they can kind of say to governments, you know, look, we've we've taken down more content, uh, which is where the pressure is pointing right now. And then governments can say, look, our pressure on platforms is working. They're taking down more more content. Of course, you know, as a, a famously speech protective organization, I'm guessing that EFF uh, would probably not be in favor of this dynamic, even if it's, you know, something that surfaces with with voluntary as opposed to mandatory reporting. So how do you think about that in designing the Santa Clara principles? Are you worried at all about creating that incentive? You know, I, I'm not only to, only because I feel like that incentive exists independently of the Santa Clara principles and very strongly. And again, I think we see this in the terrorist takedown reporting that companies were gladly doing well before the Santa Clara principles. You know, that was the thing they were reporting, you know, just to try and to try and demonstrate both to governments and to and to others that they were being very, very active uh, with respect to identifying what they considered to be terroristic content. And to me, that was really the initial focus of of efforts like the company's efforts, like what became the the global internet forum to counter terrorism, the the, the give CT. A lot of it was really, I think, incentives to just report on, and that and that doesn't even necessarily take that. Like we've identified certain pieces of content, and, and we saw this both in terms of terrorist content, as well in terms of child sexual abuse uh, imagery and material. As well, when we had these systems where there were great pressures, and the gov- and the company's responses to it was to, you know, just to to show how they were identifying and taking down tons of stuff. Uh, what we were hoping Santa Clara principles did, um, especially the second verse, is actually reporting on is to try and give a little bit more demeaning to those types of reporting that they were otherwise incentivized to do. You know, how much of this was, you know, when you have robust notice and appeal provisions, then you also have the ability to identify, to see when are those numbers being inflated? You know, when are we actually taking down too much stuff? You know, give a little bit more accountability to those types of processes where they might be incentivized to go way over what they would otherwise do. So I'm actually hoping that something like the Santa Clara principles is seen as a check against that and not contributing to that problem. So maybe to continue a little bit with my grinchiness or skepticism, one of the things that stands out about the model of the Santa Clara principles um, is that they really focus on user rights, right? The, The focus is on saying, let's give the individual user with the piece of content in question, notice a right to appeal and reasons and those kinds of things. And there's a question of whether user rights is actually one of the right frames for thinking about content moderation, which might sound like a counterintuitive statement. So I'll I'll try and explain what I mean by that. When you focus on user rights, you're kind of skewing the interests that are uh, represented because those 
individual interests may not be the same as the whole of society's interests, which, you know, could include, for example, people that aren't on social media platforms. But of course, we're seeing around the world how people don't need to be on Facebook or on Twitter to be affected by what happens on Facebook and Twitter. And that even within sort of those ecosystems, what happens on them, the individual user's interest may not be the same as sort of democratic interests or sort of, you know, counter-majoritarian interests, which may be at odds with what users want. And I think one example that really illustrates this and makes it concrete is a statistic from the oversight board, which is that when it comes to appeal from Facebook users, the number of appeals from people whose own content was removed outnumbers by 20 to one, the number of appeals it gets from people who want someone else's content removed, right? So, and in some sense that shouldn't be surprising because people's investment in what happens to their own content is going to be far greater than people's investment to what happens to somebody else's content and going through all of that appeals process to get to the oversight board is no small effort but it doesn't necessarily mean that those appeal rates accurately reflect the nature of the problems with Facebook, right? Like there's no reason to necessarily believe that Facebook's removal decisions are 20 to one times less accurate than the decisions that it makes to leave content up or that those are necessarily the most harmful decisions. So I'm curious how you think about that emphasis on user rights and that attention, that potential tension between user rights and and broader public interests. Yeah, I think it's, first of all, I think it's a fair characterization to say, to say that the Santa Clara principles are user focused. I also think, I see the Santa Clara principles as being a contribution, a user focused contribution from civil society to one of the many other efforts that are being made in this area to try and to try and put out principles out there. We've seen there's, there's efforts going on out there by sort of by the, by the companies and by uh, sort of the quasi governmental entities, such as uh, the UN has put out a transparency report. And so there, there's similar efforts. I really think what distinguishes Santa Clara principles is that they do represent civil society adopting a, a user, a user focus. I do think those users include both users who want their information up there, as well as users who want a company to enforce its rules and take things down. I do think it includes both of them. There are some things in the Santa Clara Principles that talk about uh, also reporting uh, and having some transparencies about what you don't take down, right? And so I I do think that's in there a bit, but I I agree that I think it is largely focused. And again, this might come out from this being civil society organizations that that are largely free speech organizations. It does focus more on uh, providing relief from takedowns than from not taking things down. So I, I, I again, so I think that's a fair, a fair characterization. I, I, I think the oversight board number, I think is really interesting. I mean, the oversight board originally didn't consider decisions to leave stuff up as something that could be appealed from. So I, I wonder after, and so that's, that it's a fairly recent development as far as I understand that they actually have, would even consider such decisions. I, I do think that someone remains a, remains more vested when their own content is taken down. And often when content is left up, there is a lot of content that someone is trying to get taken down for good reasons. And to focus on any single decision can be can be very difficult. So, so I would hope that the Santa Clara principles would, though, have still have provide some guidance for those who are seeing, you want to know why 
content that appeared to violate the rules was left up. I think in the report that we published, we tried to include a lot of the comments we received about certain certain of those decisions. So from the uh, consultations that were done in Africa and the individual inputs received from Africa, there was a lot of concern expressed about what they considered to be bad decisions regarding uh, gender-based violence that would have violated the rules and how it was difficult to remove that that content. From the comments received from India, there was a similar concern for for caste-based violence and caste uh, discrimination uh, comments that would appear to violate the company's rules and having and the ability to appeal those decisions. So I do hope it's in there. I do think the broader foundational principles about just your rules be explainable should apply both to decisions to take stuff down and to, and to leave things up. But I, I hear the concern, and I, I do think the Santa Clara principles are best viewed sort of in as a, a contribution to a, sort of a larger ecosystem of principles that are being, and, and thought that's being given to this area. So I wanted to jump topics for a little bit, though there is, of course, a a connection. You mentioned previously the net choice litigation in Florida, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. So there's, of course, litigation in Florida as well as in Texas over laws that both states have passed uh, regulating content moderation. And the EFF has filed an amicus brief in the Florida case, which is currently on appeal to the 11th Circuit from a district court decision in joining the law. So I I don't want to overstate the extent to which the Texas and Florida legislation is similar, but they do have similarities, including, you know, imposing a lot of procedural and transparency obligations on platforms that might be reminiscent of the Santa Clara principles, and also uh, preventing platforms from taking down certain content. The context of these laws being that Republican legislatures and governors are sort of seem to be trying to score political points for taking on big tech and their supposed censorship of conservatives. So could you give our listeners an overview of the laws, sort of what the posture of litigation is and what EFF's view of the legislation has been? Yeah, I can. I can. We filed amicus briefs in both cases. So that's so two briefs now in the Florida case, one in the trial court and one uh, in the 11th Circuit, and then a brief in the trial court um, in the Texas case as well. And I should also add, just as background, that prior to these laws, we'd also seen a sort of wave of similar of civil liability lawsuits, you know, where people whose content had been removed or whose accounts had been canceled or whose YouTube videos had been demonetized, where they were suing the platforms. Um, And in some ways, those raised similar issues. But essentially, the Florida law said that platforms of a certain size could not, and I'm going to say this very generally because I don't have it right in front of me. So I I apologize if I get get some of the details wrong. But basically saying that uh, if there was a candidate for, for office that a platform had to basically allow them to publish whatever they wanted to publish on their platform, regardless of whether it violated any of the of the platform's rules. And so that was the Florida law. It, it sort of famously had this exemption for for social media platforms owned by theme parks, um, and which is which is you know both funny but also sort of a serious defect in terms of a doctrinal constitutional analysis but that was essentially what the florida law did and then the florida law also had a bunch of sort of transparency and, uh, and mandates that are sim- that were similar to the original sort of numbers notice and appeal provisions of of the santa clara principles of the first version the texas law was a bit different in that it just more generally forbid viewpoint discrimination 
so that the companies could not apply their rules and moderate content in a way that favored some user viewpoints over another. The Texas sort of also applied to a smaller set of companies. I think the threshold was it was a high it was a higher threshold i don't have the number in front of me but a higher sort of average monthly user threshold so um intended to apply to sort of the very largest companies and and again then the texas law also had uh transparency requirements one of the things that texas law had that i just want to note because i don't know that it's appropriate for a legal mandate i just think it's a great idea for companies it actually required like a dedicated customer service line you know that you had to, that users had like there was an easy way for users to ask questions i think it's an awesome idea that every company should adopt i, I don't know if it's something that's appropriate for regulation it could be enforced that you know that would be monitored and everything but it, that was something that was in the texas law as well so you had a really interesting section in the in the brief that was titled "In Praise of Unmoderated Platforms" that I think is super interesting. So part of your your argument here is that having unmoderated platforms is actually a good thing to some extent, and that and this is your your brief in the Florida case that the Florida law would make that impossible because of the particular regulatory requirements. So. What do you mean by an unmoderated platform? I mean, reading your description of it, the I was trying to think of, you know, what actually fits this definition. And the closest I could come up with is something like um, 8kun, which is the successor to 8chan. Just because, of course, every platform or many platforms do some level of moderation in terms of, as we've discussed, you know, pruning out spam in that kind of thing. So what do you mean by unmoderated platforms and what do you see as their utility? Yeah, and so I, I will, I am first to admit, I think I might even say this in the brief. Um, this is my my Pollyanna role right here. I I believe that there's this ideal where the idea that people could have the platforms would not be moderated by a by a centralized private power, right? That people there would be something where people could freely speak and not have their speech controlled and not be subject to somebody's rules. That all legal speech could appear. Um, I I think that's an ideal that I and I want there to be a space for that ideal to exist. Does that currently exist? I don't know that it exists outside of Eight Chan or Eight Kun. And I think you could, I think it's a completely valid criticism that when it has existed, it's attracted. It becomes the refuge for the most awful but lawful speech. Right. And that you could every example, you could look at every example of a service that sets out to not moderate and then starts the moderate because it realizes it's attracting everyone who's been kicked off of the other sites and all and, and lots of very undesirable and undesirable speech. So I I will concede that there's a pie in the sky um, you know, attitude to my saying in praise of um, of unmoderated platforms. But I do think from a regulatory perspective, we should at least preserve the space for that ideal to happen, right? I, I do believe that we should still be able to experiment and see if we can do this and, and leave open the space for, for a service that doesn't moderate, to be able to do this, to have this type of forum exist. It might not be a huge forum, right? It might not be a globally accessible. Maybe it happens on a very local level. Maybe it happens on a very subject matter specific level. Again, I already, you're probably already building moderation into it then, so maybe that doesn't count, right? But I, I, I think from a regulatory perspective, I want it to have the ability 
it have the ability to exist. So there we go. I will, I will, I, and I think I even say this in the brief, I, I, you know, this perhaps is, this perhaps is not realistic and maybe there are no examples, but I do think that it should not be certainly illegal <laughs> um, to have a platform that isn't, that isn't moderated. Okay. So your Pollyannaism is bringing the Grinch out in me again. I'm going to play skeptic once <laughs> more. Surprised, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the brief, like really emphasizes doubles down on this idea of the benefit to users in having a diversity of content moderation options and that you know obviously regulation tries to impose uniformity and I generally agree with the idea that we need diversity online it would be terrible to have the same community standards across all of the internet, not to mention no sense. Like obviously as you go through in the brief, and there's this fantastic part of the brief, which I really enjoy where you go through some of the different platforms, community standards that would make no sense uh, in any other context, like Roblox's community standards banning like romantic content or Strava saying you can only have good segments and things like that, which I think is a, a really good illustration of the importance of preserving autonomy. But on the other hand, you know, the whole premise of like international human rights and, and, human rights in in domestic law is that there are certain baseline standards that are worth respecting and making uniform in certain areas where diversity isn't necessarily beneficial. And obviously there'll always be contestation around what those baselines should be, but that doesn't change the fact that there should be some baselines. And it's not clear to me, or at least the dominant conception seems to be that the current baselines, whether we're talking about substantive baselines or procedural baselines, which is what the Santa Clara principles get to, it's not clear that those are definitely the right baselines. And so I guess the question is, are there any kinds of regulation that the EFF would see as beneficial? Or is the idea that we are still, despite everything, in the best possible of all worlds and that self-regulation, you know, for all its flaws, is is the only way forward in this space because, you know, we don't want the cure to be worse than the disease? Yeah. So, I mean, just to answer the the easy question I can answer is would EFF consider anything? And so I, I should say that we you know, every, we look at every proposal that comes in and pick it apart and analyze it. And so um, I, I always, to me, it's always funny when people accuse EFF of having sort of knee-jerk anti-regulatory reactions. And I'm always like, God, you know, my job would be so much easier if we had knee-jerk reactions to anything. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think we're always looking at all proposals and analyzing them on their merits but again, it's such a, the balances are so difficult and, you know, and, and frankly, the pro, and I think you see this in Florida and Texas as well, where regulators rarely, maybe never seem to come at this from the right place, right? We, we get these really bad regulatory proposals because we're getting them motivated by something, whether it's Florida, Texas case, is this, you know, this perception that conservatives are disproportionately put upon by, by content moderators. Um, and I, I think that's part of the problem with the regulation that, that we have been seeming. I, I, I'm not personally saying that the internet is an area that cannot be regulated. I do think speech platforms are generally, even outside the internet, something that is very difficult to regulate because of the free speech concerns on all sides, both the, the concerns of the users, the concerns of the intermediaries themselves, the concerns of readers, the concerns of society more broadly that may be, that may feel some effects of speakers communicating with each other. 
it's just a tremendously difficult area to regulate. And outside the internet, the response has largely been not to regulate. So I, 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 it's to me, it's not that we're trying to find internet exceptionalism. That's or trying to find like internet should be sort of non-regulatory exceptional. I, I, to me, it's more that we are trying to decide how do we, you know, do we take this sort of speech ecosystem that is largely unregulated and respond to sort of what we perceive and may, and probably rightfully so perceive as the differences in internet and, and regulate them. So I, that's a sloppy way of just saying that I, I, I think it's, I'm open to something. We look at, we look at certainly all the U.S. proposals, spend a ton of time with the EU proposals. If we had more people, we could probably look more deeply at maybe the other international proposals and to see if there's something in there that can sort of make the ecosystem more broadly, something more consistent with, with human rights. And again, that's both human rights for those who wish to use these communications to communicate with each other, as well as sort of more broader human rights concerns. Um, if you, you know, look at the idea that there are the sort of online harms that might need to be addressed by regulation. I completely sympathize with the idea of needing more people to keep track of all the global regulations <laughs> of online speech right now. You know, it's just like, I barely know a regulator around the world that's not considering regulating the internet and its content in some form or another. And it's like at, at the start of my doctoral work, I sort of had this idea that I'd be able to track global regulation of online speech. And now it's like, I need Hermione's time turner to even keep track of half of it. So uh, yeah, you have my sympathies. So we wanted to end by sort of teasing out something that I think is we've been kind of touching on in the last few questions, which is, of course, the EFF is very famous for its quite libertarian historically view of internet regulation. And of course, many of the, the cases we've discussed today are in that vein. And one of your founders was, of course, John Perry Barlow, who wrote the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, which uh, listeners may be familiar with. But of course, over the last five or so years now, as part of the tech clash, I think it's fair to say that there's sort of been a, a culture and political movement away from that libertarianism and this idea that the internet can or should be self-regulated. I'm curious what it's been like being the civil liberties director at the EFF while this change has been taking place. I mean, we've you've talked a little bit about sort of how you see your role in this conversation. Does that shift culturally change your understanding of your role? That's a really good question. I feel like in in my role both as EFF and sort of, and being involved even you know, I've been at EFF for eight years. I've been doing this type of work both. You know, I've been doing sort of free speech law and advocacy for almost thirty years. So I I've never felt like I operated in an area where we weren't subject to great challenge. Like I, there was, there wasn't a situation where we sort of rode this wave of cyber libertarianism that was reflected in government and, and regulation. So in some ways, the tech lash, the difficulty in the tech lash is we're now in the challenge of the tech lash is there's a, a sort of a different group of people we need to sort of talk about and hear their concerns and figure out where they're coming from and what is their what are their concerns where are the problem how do you address these things right maybe maybe before it was just a different group of people um, regulators I, I've never gotten the sense that regulators didn't want to regulate the area so I, I also sort of dispute the idea that the internet hasn't been regulated I mean internet operators think will tell you that the DMCA is a 
ever-present regulatory scheme that they that they must comply with that you know copyright uh, makes up a predominant amount of of content moderation uh, decisions uh, and actions for for many services that's been subject to a regulatory scheme for a long time you know in the US internet has always been subject to federal criminal law and with respect to specifically with respect to child sexual um, abuse imagery and material that's been that they've always had to keep in mind so i i guess for me it's not the difference is i there's more people to talk to hear their concerns try to explain what our position is you know again we're always constantly you know listening to people trying to reevaluate our positions on things um or see if we need to reevaluate our position so in some ways the tech clash is is a challenge but it's not the change is not from a, a from sort of the utopia of everyone loved the internet and didn't want to regulate it. <laughs> the change is, I, I think there was a period of time where at least some of the big companies were just seen as so cool and that you know, people were generally happy with them. I, I don't think this is a bad thing, but I think sort of a societal desire, at least a US societal desire to want to have the system move in a different direction or have want this just to be less about Facebook, right? And and maybe a more diverse and rich and interesting atmosphere than that. All right. Thank you so much for coming on, David. This was really fun. I was happy to do it. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, We're taking next Thursday off for the holidays, but Lawfare will have something in your feed for you to listen to. And we'll be back the week after that. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Kara Schillen. Our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast on whatever app you use, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening.